John chapter 4 is our focus passage for today with a little title being thirsty and hungry and we'll see both elements from our reading today. Just before we take our reading there I want us to think about our being thirsty for a life that's free fulfilling and forever and we see that in the woman that the Lord has an interaction with at the well near a town called Syker. We all have a desire that's revealed in her a thirst for a life that's free from guilt and shame. We have a thirst for a life that is fulfilling in knowing that what we do has lasting purpose. And a life that is forever because it is unending and is not just limited to here and now. Then I also want us to see towards the end of the passage that we're going to read that for those who are transformed by God's love, there is then a being hungry for a life that brings glory to God. And we see that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A life that knows and honours the will of God. A life that's lived in the power of God that he himself supplies. A life that's all about God and about other people and brings glory to him in everything. So this being thirsty for a life that's free and fulfilling and forever and this being hungry for a life that brings glory to God is seen and the woman who's there at the well that the Lord interacts with and then the Lord and what he says to his disciples after that interaction occurs. So have that in mind as we take our reading together. It's John chapter 4 and we'll start from verse 1. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, 
Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Now the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that time believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words... Many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Saviour of the world. John's intention in his Gospel account is to show us from interactions that the Lord Jesus has with various people the people who come to truly believe in who he is. And he very helpfully shows us the struggle that everybody has in coming to terms with who Jesus is and what he claims he will do and can do for people. And what is really good in John's account is having selected uh, these, these little episodes, he's showing us people from all walks of life from all sorts of backgrounds to show us and convince us that the salvation that God offers us through the Lord Jesus Christ is not limited by who we are, what we've done, or what we're doing right now. With a contrast from chapter 3 to chapter 4, you have Nicodemus. We thought about him 
the high-ranking Jewish religious leader of his day, who was a righteous man, no doubt, honouring God in the things that he observed. But he had to be brought into an understanding that he had to be born again. It was salvation according to God's way that was necessary for him. And here we have this interaction that Jesus has with this woman who's not a Jew and she's from a a race of people that were despised by the Jews. And her life seemingly is in a bit of a mess and she's had it difficult. And you could say that she's one that would be classed in those days and certainly some people today could look on judgmentally and say that's somebody you wouldn't necessarily spend any time with but Jesus He comes and says to her that she needs to know God's salvation too. In both cases, you go from one extreme to the other, if we can say that. You have the Lord Jesus focusing them back in on himself as the source of life. The shortest road from Judea to Galilee. Judea is where um, Jerusalem was, capital city, centre of religious activity. Um, The road from Judea to Galilee, which is where Jesus grew up, uh, was a mountainous route if you took the direct road. And that took you through this uh, area of Samaria, or Samaritan territory. And actually, the Jews, because of their hatred for the Samaritans, which I'm going to explain in a moment, they would actually come out of Jerusalem and go down the hill and cross over the Jordan and walk up the other side of the Jordan and then cross back over the Jordan and come back along into Galilee that way, a long route with two treacherous crossings of the Jordan just to avoid these people. And here we have Jesus taking the shortest route, which is uh, like a direct line in the uplands. If you look (coughs) on your map and look at the topography there, you can see it's in the uplands. But it would be the shortest route and take them that way. Verse 4 tells us, as John records it, that he had to go through Samaria. Now, what, what do we take from that? Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria if the route that many Jews would take would be this double crossing of the Jordan and walk up the east side and come back in the cross at the top. He didn't have to go that way, but John records that he did. Uh, it's probably because he had this appointment and it was in God's will and God's purpose that he had this definite appointment that he knew all about. Because it seems that the Lord Jesus every day was in prayer first thing with his father. And would know for that day what it was that God was giving him to do. And he knew that he had to go this way. Not wanting to make too much of it. But John says it very distinctly. He had to go through Samaria. There was a reason for it. And the reason was that he would have this interaction with this woman. That would lead to the transformation of a town. He had this specific appointment to keep. Why did the Jews not like the Samaritans? Well, you have to go back in history and you're into the, um, the late 8th and early 7th century BC. I never know how that works whenever you're working backwards. 7th and 8th, 8th and 7th, that crossover period. 722, the northern tribes of Israel had been overrun by the Assyrians and they took people away from there, deported them. But in their place, they would repopulate the towns with people from other areas that they'd already conquered. And you had this sort of mix of people that were Jews and pagans or worshippers of of other gods that weren't gods, of course. 
And at one stage, they actually sent a teaching priest to try and train them in the things of Judaism, but that didn't work. And there's this whole uh, synchronizing of pagan idolatry with a, a reverence for God that was just a mess of a, of a religion that was all mixed up. So you have this territory within the boundaries of, of Israel at that time, when the Lord is here, that's known as Samaritan territory, where these people are who are not proper Jews. In fact, they're not to be touched because uh, of their heritage and the mixed race and so on. They actually built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. Now, Jacob's well was probably on the lower slopes of Mount Gerizim. So you imagine yourself now put in the spot in the upland area with the Lord. And he's tired from his journey, fully human, the Son of God, fully human. He's tired from his journey, he's sitting by the well, as he's told the disciples, or they've said, we need to go and find food, and they've gone off into the little town of Sychar. And he's sitting there by the well on the, the lee slopes of, of Mount Gerizim, where once there was a temple that these people had constructed that was to rival the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews hated that so much that in the period between uh, the last of the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament, so in that period that we have to look at history books to find out more, they went up and they flattened that temple. The Jews went up in their anger and destroyed it. So this is where all this tension was coming from. That people, as John commentates for us, had nothing to do. The Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans and vice versa. So here's Jesus in the middle of this territory, looking at the mountain where once this temple had stood. And he's by Jacob's well, which Jacob said, you go back and look in Genesis, that he paid money to have it. But also in one account it says he took it by the sword as well, so he had to fight for it. And it was a place that was precious to him and he gave it to Joseph, his favoured son, and his two sons and so on. You, you have the Lord sitting by this well and he's tired. And he's in the middle of this area where most Jews would not go and spend any time. And the Samaritan woman, she comes out at noon. Now, some have said that that's not the normal time to come and draw water because usually in the heat of the day, you're going to have uh, struggles with that. And normally the women would come together as a group in the morning for safety reasons to the well to gather the water and then to take it back into town. So we see in this, uh, interpreting in it in some way, that this woman might have been a social outcast coming at noon, either out of necessity but probably because she was on her own. And I think what the Lord exposes in her life tells us why it should be like that. Notice her surprise when the Lord says to her, give me a drink, please. And she's like, well, um, Jewish men won't talk to Jewish women in public unless their husband is around. Um, Jews they wouldn't talk to Samaritans for reasons that we've, we've already explained. And Jews certainly, and this is probably what she's getting at, wouldn't ask to drink from a Samaritan's cup. The Jews said that if you had dealings with the Samaritans because they weren't uh, careful with all of the ritual that was associated with cleansing cups and plates and utensils and their hands and so on, 
If you were to drink from a cup, then you were defiled. Your purity was, was spoiled. So um, she's surprised. You asked me for a drink because he'd nothing. She said to him, you remember, you've nothing to draw with. You're asking me to give you something in a receptacle that I have here? She's astounded. But notice how her reply raises questions for her and for us that we need answers to. He says, if you knew the gift of God, first question, what's the gift of God? And who it is that asks you for a drink? Second question, who is this person? You would have asked him. Third question, why should I ask this man for anything? And he would have given you living water. That's what the Lord said. And your last question is, what on earth is this living water he's talking about? The woman's reply does seem a little sarcastic. You've nothing to draw with. And uh, so how are you going to draw? And where are you going to find a fresher water source than this one? She was going back to the mutual heritage that they shared, that Jacob was one of the patriarchs, the, the great fathers of the nation. And he'd found this and it was deep. The well is measured at 30 metres at the moment. and Most likely was deeper then. So that's a deep well to have found. And you had to drop your buckets in a long way to, to get that water and back up. There's a lot of work involved in that. You don't have a bucket. And you think there's a fresher source of water here that's better than the one that Jacob found it and we've used it for centuries. Do you notice what she says? She says, Jacob drank from it and his sons and all of his animals. It was, uh, it was enough for him and his family and everything that they owned and it's been enough for us in the town of Syker. So on, you sort of get this hint of her, her response to the Lord's reply to her. This water source is enough, she's saying. Thanks very much. I hope I'm not putting words in her mouth, but that, I think, is what the response is. But then the Lord continues it, doesn't he? And verses 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water, you can imagine him pointing to the well or what she's drawn because if he's asked for a drink, she's probably already drawn something out. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's speaking about something else entirely. Something that is within, that is a source of satisfaction, that is living. Now, when we get to John 7, in the Lord's will, we'll hear the Lord standing up in Jerusalem one day and saying, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And John gives us a commentary and says, by this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So you have the Lord here in John 4 speaking about the reality of God coming in the person of his Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, coming to take up residence by and in the person of his Spirit in the life of an individual that there is the source of satisfaction and the source of life. God is the giver of life. From all eternity, God has been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God has been Father from all eternity before anything else. The Father gives life and sustains life. He has been that and continues to be it. And here is Jesus saying, look, 
what I can give is not this physical water, it's something deeper that is within. And notice that he says it's a gift to be received. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Yes, I've got a better source of life than what is provided by what you've just drawn from this well. It's something that you can have for yourself and it's from God and it's a gift. You don't work for it. You ask and receive it. We're all thirsty for that sort of life that knows the freedom that I mentioned at the beginning, that knows fulfillment and that knows that it's forever. We have it all within ourselves. When we stop and think for a while, there is a desire to have a life that has meaning. Freedom from the things of shame that this life just constantly throws on us as baggage through our own actions and through the actions of others. A life that has fulfillment but something that really does mean something more than maybe just what I get out of it or what others get out of it at, the, at this moment. But there's some, we're looking for something deeper than that and a life that is forever. There are some who say there's nothing beyond it's difficult then to, to find a, a real deep purpose and meaning in life if that's the case and Jesus is saying here look if you knew who I was and what I can give you which is the gift of God you would have asked and I give you God now that implies that we as living beings created by God do not have that sort of life naturally we have a life that is full of the good things that God gives us by his grace every day. But we don't have that sort of life that is free and fulfilled and forever. We don't get that automatically. It's something that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to come to secure for us and to offer to us. Because he has the power to do it. If you go back in your Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. God said through the prophet. To the people of Israel. 600 years before this happens. He says my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. The spring of living water. And have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. There's a description of sin. Sin is turning away from God. Forsaking him and thinking we've got everything we need for life in ourselves. And that goes right back to the very beginning of sin and its entrance into the human race. Forsaking God and thinking we know better than him. But the other thing then is trying to fill the void with other means. And the description there is one of digging these holes in the ground and you put your water into it and it just runs away. Because it seeps away. It, it's not held. It's there's just no satisfaction. Life just seems to trickle through your fingers. Now, for many, sadly, is how life is. They feel that life is just trickling through their fingers. And God says there are two sins. One is walking away from him. And the other then is trying to fill what should be taken by him in our lives with other things. That's a description of sin that we do well to notice. As those who made 
as yet not be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also those who are. That we can do the same thing, forsaking God and the things that he says, and then trying to fill the void of, well, what's this life all about with other things that are not according to what God says for us. Of course, the woman is struggling as Nicodemus was. And the Lord's use of these metaphors um, to describe a, a deeper spiritual reality, she's stuck in the physical thing, and, and we're no different. We get stuck too. If it was not for God, by his spirit, awakening us to the spiritual realities of who he is, we get stuck in the physical as well. We need his help to understand spiritual realities. And maybe we need to keep asking him for that. Please God, show me what it is that you mean by this in your word. Because here's the Lord speaking again to somebody and they don't get it. Let's not kid ourselves that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, every time we come to God's word, oh, I've got it. Not at all. God will show us what it is he wants us to know. But we have to be ready to ask him, show me what it is and what this means for me and my life. The woman's life is then exposed. And uh, the Lord says, go and bring your husband. And the conversation carries on. And she says that there... I have no husband. Person's been there for about 20 minutes. Sorry, Samira. Maybe she's got some cakes for us. Um, what was I saying? The Lord uh, asked a question that exposes the, her life. She's had five marriages and they failed. Now back then, uh, they would have failed for various reasons. She most likely was suffering some form of abuse, going from relationship to relationship. It was a sad, sad situation she was in. But Jesus had to expose the reality of her sin. She was, she was not innocent in all of this. The Lord is saying that. The Lord is saying, look, you're in a relationship now and you're not married. And I don't want to get into the whole discussion about marriage and how it's viewed in culture today. That's a whole different topic on itself. But back then, to not be married was a sign of defiance against the things that God had clearly said. It still is today. And um, here, was, here was the Lord having to expose the reality of sin in her life as well as the sin in others' lives. And the effect it was having. And if she is a social outcast, she's suffering that because of sin. And the Lord lovingly exposes it in that conversation. Now this week, there's been a lot on social media that's been put out that was said by a medium uh, a number of years ago. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. And some of you will know what that's in relation to. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. It's the encouragement. It's a mantra that's been adopted to say, well, just be kind to people. That's the main thing and it will prevent people from harming themselves or, or worse. It's a wonderful sentiment whenever you listen to it, but it's flawed. I can't get into all of what, how it's flawed, but in a world where you can be anything, that's what the word says to us today, we can be whatever we want. God says, no, you can't be whatever you want. I have to park that one there. But the phrase, be kind, yes, of course. It's, 
required of Christians. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit's work is kindness to be shown. But not whenever there is something that is so harmful in somebody that to ignore it and just say kind things about it is going to destroy them. Now Jesus wasn't being the other end of the scale that people say you have to be cruel to be kind. He wasn't being cruel. The Lord was pointing out, as he had the right to in his conversation, that which was at the source of the trouble in this woman's life. And how her search for satisfaction and a life of fulfillment and freedom and forever was not to be found in her present experience. It was only to be found in what he could provide. We're not to be cruel to be kind. And we're not just simply to be kind. As Paul says, to Christians in the Church of God in Ephesus, he says, let's speak the truth in love. And that takes some boldness and it takes wisdom too. But here we have Jesus coming and exposing the reality because that's what it needs, the reality of sin and its effects to be exposed in, in somebody's life so that they can reach out in faith to take Jesus and all of the satisfaction that he has. Paul said, in Acts 20 verse 21 that he'd gone around saying that people needed to turn to God in repentance. That means to turn away from sin. Remember that description in Jeremiah 2? You've forsaken me. Paul says, I've preached that people would turn back. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him, the one who has come to bring the gift of God and to be himself the gift of God. The one who would give himself as the gift to suffer for our sins consequences on the cross. That was his mission. He has come to bring this life to us. The reason I'm labouring this and saying that the Lord was not being cruel to be kind. And he wasn't just simply being kind and ignoring what was destroying this person's life and actually the lives of others in the town of Syker. Is because what do you see about the woman's response? She doesn't get into a strop and walk off. How dare you speak to me like that? That seems to be how people respond today. If you address anything about it. What does she do? She later speaks in her testimony to the people in the town. This man knows everything about me. He knew everything about me. Can this be the Messiah? Come and see. So this Jesus speaking the reality of her situation and exposing the sin that is there in her situation, her own and that of others in her setting, becomes the means for her to say, this is the Messiah and in him I find my escape. I think that's wonderful. You know, God knows all about us. Go and read Psalm 139. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who've repented and turned to God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God that he has of us is something that brings us deep joy and confidence. But for those who don't know the Lord Jesus as Saviour and are in a situation of being in the consequences of their sin. That's a fearful thing. So how do you feel? When the Bible tells us and Jesus says, I know all about you. Does it bring you to repentance and to trust him? Because he's 
died on the cross and borne that sin that would keep you from God. You can rejoice in the life that he gives. Now, we don't have time to get into everything else here, but the Lord goes, goes into re, uh, religious activity because that's where the woman goes next, almost maybe in a sense to try and deflect things. I can tell you're a prophet, you know everything. So let's, um, let's have a discussion about um, where we worship. And the Lord takes her into a wonderful text we don't have the time to spend on. We need to take it on its own. He says, look, worship is not related to this mountain or Jerusalem. The time is coming when God is going to show that true worshippers are those who worship in spirit and truth. I actually would say this. I think the NIV and the Christian Standard Bible have got the wrong interpretation on the verse there. They say the spirit. But the sense of it speaks about people worshipping in spirit and in truth. Yes, we worship by the spirit. And we've done that this morning as the people of God here in Manchester. We have worshipped by the spirit. But in the sense of what is written here and what Jesus is saying, he said, it's what is inside the spirit of who you are and the genuineness of that in your attitude towards God. That's what is important. That which is within. What makes you tick. And the truth of that before God is what counts. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. And they're the kind of worshippers the Father is seeking. The Lord Jesus says in another place, Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that were lost. So lost ones in their sin are found by Jesus, the Saviour who comes, and he seeks to bring them, that they might be worshippers of God. What does it mean to worship God? It means that you live for God. And you recognise that God is the source of life and satisfaction of freedom of fulfilment, of forever life that is to be enjoyed, that you're thirsty for and that only he can satisfy. Messiah is coming, she says, and he will explain everything to us. There she is. She's looking for somebody who has all the answers. And Jesus says, I, the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Now, Jesus would not have said that to a Jewish audience. We see that throughout the Gospels. He was very guarded about declaring that he was the Messiah because that had all sorts of uh, military overtones and it would have caused some sort of rebellion against the Romans and that's not what Jesus had come for. But here with the Samaritan woman, he comes straight out with it. I am this one who has all the answers that you're looking for. Answers to do with religion, yes. Answers to do with what it really means to find satisfaction and fulfilment and freedom in life, yes. I am he. And I have all the answers. What is the gift of God? That question that was raised in the mind. The gift of God is eternal life. An internal spring that comes from God taking up residence in a forgiven life. The son of, who is this person? He's the son of God, the Messiah, who secures and offers this life. Why should I ask this person for anything was in the woman's mind. Because he has all the answers. For everything. And he's worthy of our trust. And what is this living water? It's an unending spring that satisfies in life. So the Lord's opening statement to the woman. And the questions that are raised in the mind get answered in the subsequent conversation they have together. I just want to say very, very quickly then something about being hungry for the will of God. Here's this thirst that is satisfied in the Saviour Jesus who's come to bring worshippers 
that the Father is seeking into the joy of that life that is free and fulfilled and forever. The disciples return from Sychar and they've got food supplies. Have something to eat, Lord. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Here was saying that the fuel that kept him going and meant that he was sitting by that well, that meant he had followed that road, was that he might do the will of his father. And Luke tells us record, uh, repeatedly in his account that he did everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. So a life that is transformed with repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then has, has new motive and new action as that person becomes a worshipper of God. Worship of God shows the glory of God because that person will then want to do what is the Father's will. We have the Lord here saying that everything that he was about, what was fueling him, was to do what the Father said. Now some of us can sit back as Christians and say, well I don't know what the Lord's will is for my life. Open your Bible and see the demands that God places on your life for this very day. Take some time with God's word in the morning and see that this is the type of person that God empowers you to be. When you read his word, oh God, I can't be that. I've said you can. And by the spirit who indwells you, that source of living water, that source of life, you can be that person. Not in your own strength, but in the strength that I provide. Did you notice something that's here? It's not said explicitly. But the woman, when she goes back, and she's a social outcast, she goes and she gets the people and she says, come and see this man. And then the townsfolk come out. And their interaction with Jesus means that he spends two days and many more come to believe and say, we know this one is the saviour of the world. That's John saying, salvation is open to everyone, Jew and Samaritan and beyond. But you notice something? The 12 disciples had trotted off into the town and got what they needed and came back. Did they bring any townsfolk with them? No. The very people who, who knew of the kingdom and knew of the teaching and knew who Jesus was and were learning that came back and their focus was on the physical too. Let's not be guilty of the same. But speak of that which has transformed us. One person has an impact on the town. And we're told then in Acts, and getting into Acts chapter 8, that when the persecution starts to happen in Jerusalem and Judea, Philip goes into Samaria and he begins to preach. And the expansion of the work of God, people being saved and baptised and added to churches of God, continues the expansion. In a sense, it starts here. The Lord says, look, you normally say you have to wait four months for a harvest. He says, I'm here. And I've just speeded it all up. You don't need to wait. Look, they're coming. And actually, guys, you've not done the work. God is gracious to us. We pray to him and trust in him. There is a harvest to be reaped. And faithful service to him. That honours him and is hungry to be fueled with the things of God's will for our lives. And my closing encouragement again is let's not think of what the grand will of God might be for my life. 
but see in the next little steps that I can take every single day by his spirit, empowered to live a life for his glory. It can change a town. Let's pray.